Hello and welcome to Advanced Practice Weekly. My name is AJ Bat and I will be your host. Today I'm joined by a very, very special guest, a colleague and a friend from the Ambulance Service. Georgia Eaton is here to talk to us today all about her journey towards a PhD. So Georgia, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. So, Georgia, I think it's probably best to start. Tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, sure. So I'm currently an NIHR doctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford. And what that means is that I'm undertaking a DPhil in evidence-based healthcare, which has been funded by the NIHR, the National Institute for Health and Care Research. Wonderful. So we wanted to get you on the programme today specifically because we wanted you to explain to us how you went about the process of gaining your research grant, how you came up with the idea for your research question. What was the driver for you to sort of go down this route of research? You're obviously very interested in research, but we wanted to kind of get a bit more information on it to help others out there that might be thinking about going down this route of research. Yeah, sure. So prior to my current role, I was a paramedic in general practice in primary care. And uh, I also worked in the ambulance service, a different ambulance service on two. And so I had two different contracts. And uh, at the time, I ran the patient and public group for the practice that I worked in. And one of the uh, bits of engagement I did with them was trying to explain the non-GP roles that worked in the primary care practice that I was in and how we could reach out to patients with that, how we could explain them to patients. And that included like the practice nurses, the ones who were specialists in diabetes, asthma, as well as there was a social prescriber and then there was me. Oh, and also a foundation year doctor. So, and and it came up again, like, why, why can you be here? What makes a paramedic able to work in primary care? And And then that got me thinking and I was like, well, if I can't adequately explain this to patients and patients are quite clearly confused about this, what does the health landscape say? And at the time there was like the GP forward view, the NHS long-term plan, and they were all saying that additional roles could work in primary care and paramedics were listed there, but it wasn't didn't really outline how they could work. And so I was already at the University of Oxford. I was doing a master's degree in education and I was doing some work with a GP who is now a professor and is now is my supervisor on my PhD. And I spoke to him about it and he said, well, why don't we research this? And that was that. And then so we developed an idea with patients and members of the public, some of whom came from the group I was in involved in and we recruited others from from Oxfordshire and the surrounding areas and developed a plan to do some research and then applied for some funding as well to do that research. Right so quite a journey you've been on really and what how long did that what was that sort of time frame from you coming up with that kind of idea for you actually getting and starting your PhD? Probably about 18 months so I think from having the conversations with patients and developing that idea I think it was about 18 months right I mean that doesn't sound that long to me that actually sounds quite quick so you know I guess some people have like research ideas and they think about them in their 20s and don't get around to research them until their 40s so I think that's I think that sounds quite quick to me so if you could encapsulate your research question for our listeners how what would that what would that look like how would you describe your main research question what are you trying to answer 
So my research is focused on understanding how paramedics work in primary care. And I am using a particular type of methodology to do so, which is realist methods. And that follows a realist philosophy. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want to answer questions like how, why, for whom, to what extent, and in what context do paramedics work in primary care? Because answering those questions means that we can produce something that can support intelligent policy. At the moment, there's no policy that really supports paramedics in primary care and this landscape. And so what I wanted to do was produce research that can be used as a basis for policy and actually change what paramedics are doing not only report on what's happening but change and make sure that the profession is is filling a gap that needs to be filled and not just being shoehorned because it, it may work and it may not so this is really topical at the moment isn't it with the r's roles that are out there it's massive isn't it with the amount of paramedics being used in primary care is getting bigger and bigger all the time because we are seen as that quick fix in certain areas of primary care where there are a lack of general practitioners where there is a huge lack of resources you know the paramedics can come in and help because we do have very good assessment skills and can recognize unwell people quite quickly because that's what we're trained to do so it's interesting so this so hopefully your your research will enable people who are making those policies to look at what they're actually doing and see whether or not what we're doing is actually right or wrong at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And you said before that sort of from initial idea through to starting was about 18 months quite quick. Well, I think it had to be quick because I wanted to jump on this gap that existed. Um, and as it's sort of transpired over the last three years, we still have this gap. Mm. And, and what has been amazing is that I have been uh, able to publish my work packages as I've gone along. And um, we're seeing some of them have a little bit of an impact with the King's Fund, who obviously support policy documents for the government, the College of Paramedics, which is the paramedic professional body, and also Health Education England, who have written a roadmap for paramedics working in primary care. So it's been really exciting to see actually some of the, the work that I'm doing is actually starting to have an effect. And that's the whole point that I wanted to do this research. Yeah, I, th I think we've spoken before about any sort of research we do. We always want it to actually be used and have an impact. We don't want to just write about something that is that you're just doing for an essay or for a piece of work to get you through your course. You want to do it so it actually has a real world impact because then it's actually worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And because this came from conversations I had with patients, I wanted to make it tangible impact on, on what they would experience and perhaps if it had developed through other routes maybe that wouldn't happen but I, I feel really strongly about the importance of patient engagement and public engagement in research design and actually undertaking the research through to dissemination. Right so we've got the concept we've got the idea now you know what you want to do what were your next steps? So I was probably quite lucky that the next steps happened simultaneously for me because I was already working with um, Professor Matani, who's my supervisor, on a, another project that actually fed into my DPhil really well. So I already had somebody who was happy to supervise me in this capacity, but I did actually have to find other people. So 
for the most part, you have an idea, you've developed that idea with people that you trust. And maybe like me, you've had some patient engagement. And then you may have found a supervisor who's already quite interested in supporting you, or it maybe you have to find somebody to support you. So I'd spoken to Professor Matani about what I wanted to do. And we realized we needed a methodologist who was an expert in realist methods. So I approached Dr. Jeff Wong, who's a clinical uh, academic GP also in this department uh, to develop that idea further. And in doing so, I spoke to a qualitative researcher, Dr. Veronica Williams, uh, who was a nurse uh, academic as well. And then it just sort of grew. So I had my idea. I had some patient engagement. I identified a supervisor who I could work with. And from that, then identified other supervisors who whose skills and expertise would benefit my project and then worked out a plan and developed that plan. And whilst I had their support, that development was very much my journey. Now, I needed to develop a quite full plan in order to apply for funding, but many people don't need to develop such a plan until they're on their their PhD or their DPhil because that's often what's done in the first year of, of the PhD or DPhil. Right, so just to backtrack that because this is a question that I have in my head so you said you didn't you your plan was quite well developed if I had a plan about I wanted to do some research on for a PhD could that be quite a small loose plan and then you spend the first year of your PhD developing that plan absolutely and that's one of the most common ways to undertake a, a PhD and it's one of the most common ways to spend your first year that you have an idea you've got some tentative uh, steps in terms of the methodologies you would use but then in your first year you undertake training to undertake those methodologies if you don't have that already and you in- immerse yourself in a research culture where you can sort of discuss those ideas and develop them further right so is does that first part of the phd have a name or a term within a sort of nihr framework um, do, you, do you apply for the whole phd or do you apply just for that first year it's perhaps not as simple as either of those two things. So when you apply for a PhD, you apply for a PhD. But generally in your first year, you need to draw up plans until which those plans are drawn up and presented. You're a probationary researcher or a probationary PhD student. And then you would have some sort of transfer of status in which you present these plans and what you've done. And then that confirms that you're a DPhil or PhD candidate. Now, those terms are very much associated with what I do at Oxford, but similar terms exist across the rest of the UK and in most other institutions. The concept is there is a year in which you plan, develop, refine, and then you have to present that and pass that then to carry on. Now, that's not called anything in an AHR, as far as I'm aware, because by the time you undertake your study, if it's funded by the NIHR on a clinical doctoral fellowship or a doctoral research fellowship, you've already done quite a lot of that. You've already got your plan because you have to submit quite a comprehensive overview of your research plan to to be awarded funding. Right. So let's backtrack here and talk to me how you've got your idea you've got all your team around you so you were quite lucky in that sense because you were already there if I was somebody that didn't have that I'm assuming I would come up with my idea I would approach different people who have specialisms within those areas so if I wanted to do something around advanced practice I would go and speak to some people that have special interest in advanced practice ask them if they would supervise me they would say yes or no and then and, and I guess 
that would then depend on the university that you end up trying to do your PhD at because that person would need to have an affiliate with them. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yeah. Right. Amazing. Okay. I, I am listening. Okay. So, <laughs> so you've then got your idea. So how does the funding work? Do you go onto the NIHR website? How does it work? Yeah. So I think it's, if you go to fundingawards.nihr.ac.uk and you can find out all the different awards that they fund. Now, you might apply for a pre-doctoral fellowship, which may give you some money to draw up these ideas or do some research associated with what your PhD might do. Or like me, you may apply for a doctoral research fellowship or a clinical doctoral research fellowship. And those two awards fund the doctorate being done. The difference is a clinical doctoral research fellowship is done in partnership between a university and a NHS trust, whereas a doctoral research fellowship is just the university. With CDRF, it's expected that you spend about 20% of your time in clinical practice. And then with a DRF, you, you don't need to do that. Now, I've chosen to do that because that was important to me. Um, so there's there's options available. And it's really great that there is a, a pathway for clinicians to undertake doctorates. I mean, it's quite, I don't know if it's very new, but it's, it's quite a new concept. Mm. And it's amazing that that exists because otherwise there there's no pathway for those of us that are AHPs essentially. yeah so I was looking at this yesterday doing a little bit of my own research before I spoke to you and saw that there were two pathways there are one for medical staff so for doctors and dentists and then there's one completely separate for allied healthcare professionals paramedics nurses and the likes of us to go down that clinical researcher route so I thought that was that was really amazing because when I looked at it, I thought, wow, there's a whole process for us allied healthcare professionals, which which made me happy, which was really good. So then I'm assuming you then go online, you put in your application, somebody contacts you, says yes. Yes. So there's a particular form that you fill in and it's really quite long. There, I think your research plan is about 5,000 words. You talk about your research career to date, the involvement you've had from patients and members of the public, collaborations you've developed or need to develop for your PhD to be successful, and also plain English summary of what you intend to do. When And that's really important because should you be selected to interview, on the interview panel will be some scientists, researchers, but there'll also be patients and members of the public. And I think that's another key thing. Not only do we need to make sure that we undertake research that has a tangible effect on practice, but actually it needs to be understood by the people that it affects. And so for me, paramedics working in primary care has a massive impact on patients. So it was really important, as I said, that I have patients involved in the design of my, my project, but also that the whole way along, you're thinking about how can I make this applicable to patients? How can I make it so that they understand what I'm talking about. Right, so the service user is really at the heart of a lot of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, amazing. Right, so you put your application in. I'm assuming you went for an interview and you had to do your presentation. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. So um, you submit an application. If you are successful at shortlist and you're invited to an interview where you present your research and then you ask questions, you answer questions on it. And those questions will come from other researchers, patients, members of the public. And it, it's a, a very rigorous 
interview process. And can I ask, how was your interview? Was it pretty stressful? <laughs> how did it go? <laughs> so I actually applied twice. Well, actually, technically three times. So the first time I applied for a clinical doctoral research fellowship and I was unsuccessful. I'd already started on the DPhil. When I had that notification, I thought, well, I'll carry on and I'll revise my application because you can submit once more. Right. So then I resubmitted again. And the second time I uh, applied for a clinical doctoral research fellowship and a doctoral research fellowship. So and I was I had the choice. I was I was awarded both. So I, I chose one of them that worked for me at the time. And I think if I think about it, the distinctions between the three interviews are really very clear. The first one, I was so nervous so so nervous and whilst I answered questions that were given to me I recognised that I perhaps didn't answer them with the conviction I should have had and and the confidence whereas the second time I went for interview both for the CDRF and the DRF I was much more assured in the project I was doing because I'd had a year to work on it I'd actually started I'd already done a, a scoping review of my topic area so I knew a lot about my project topic area I knew about my project and I think I had that conviction in those in answering their questions much more so right okay so we know it's going to be it's not going to be easy but it's not unsurmountable if you've got the right research question and you've got some the right backing and people around you who believe in your project and what you want to do then the application process is there. It's lengthy, but it's doable. And then there's an interview as well. Okay. Absolutely. And I think you also need to have passion for your topic area. You have to be really invested in it. And I was invested because I was working in it. So I was reminded every day of the importance of what I was doing. And I'm passionate about our profession that we we often aren't mentioned in policy or the role isn't understood very well. So I think those two things really stood me in good stead. And I think that's the best advice I could give to anyone. Like make sure whatever you choose, you'll be interested in for the next four years yeah. because you really have to have that passion. And if that passion goes out, I think it can get quite hard. Yeah, you're going to have to live with that, aren't you, for four years. So yeah. it's definitely worth it. I know when um, I did my dissertation and my master's, it was definitely a bit of a struggle towards the end. <laughs> so yeah, you definitely have to ask the right research question, I think, and know what you're doing helps as well. Um, okay, great. So so I'm assuming you then got your money, I guess. Mm -hmm. And how does your, your host university, you've already got that agreement, how does that kind of work? How, how do they like give you somewhere to sit and a room and stuff like that? Is that, is that a thing sort of yeah. it, it depends what uh, when you submit your application you also have to submit finance costings and that's costings for you to undertake the research so that would include things like your phd fees attendance at conferences so what are your phd fees so you do you have to pay the university that you want to do the research at yeah absolutely it's like any other education course you pay for it just similar to a master's or undergraduate so when you submit an application you submit your finance costings, including PhD fees, com like conferences you might want to attend, open access for publication charges. If you have patient and public involvement, how you might remunerate them or compensate them for their time and anything particular to the methodology that you're undertaking. Within that, the university will also perhaps have an estate charge. So what it does cost for you to have a desk or 
to be able to print in the department. But some people have that. I chose to have that. And some people choose not to have that and choose to do it from home. I chose to work within the university because I wanted to be surrounded by other people undertaking research in the clinical setting I was in, but also just in a research culture. And I think that's really, really important. You're really embedded. So if I have a question, no matter how daft it is, I've got lots of people I can turn to and have that support. And I think as a DPhil or PhD student, that's really, really important. Right. Great. Okay. So I think you've answered a lot of questions there for some of our listeners that might be thinking about doing a PhD and the process. And we can put a few links in the bio for the NIHR website so you can go and have a look and see what opportunities are out there for them. So Georgia, I know you're three years into your PhD now. How has it been so far? I have really enjoyed it. It's been amazing. I've had three different work packages or technically maybe four, as part of my project. And I've I've completed sort of one each year. And that's been really great to have a focus for a year. But also I've been able to build my knowledge every year. And I think because I'm still passionate about the work, the setting, the profession and what I'm doing, that's really helped. So I've really enjoyed it. I mean, the get me wrong I haven't enjoyed every moment. There's some bits of it which I found quite challenging. And one example of that is the process of applying for NHS ethics approval. Something that I think is really, really important and required to do some of the research that I did, but it's quite a lengthy process. And there, I found there wasn't as much support for that as I felt there could have been. And there wasn't as many people who had gone through that as I thought there would be. So my my supportive research culture in that peer support was a bit smaller than what I was used to. Um, so I found that challenging, but and through it over the other side, collected the data. So that's fine. And I really have enjoyed it so far. I just need to write everything up and finish now. Okay, so you've now got like 14, 16 months worth of write-up to do. <laughs> yes, well, less than that. So I've got, uh, I think I need to submit by September. So Okay, so not that much time. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so you've got time, you've got to now write up. Great. So, I mean, what what's the next step for somebody that's done a PhD? So the next step for somebody who's done a PhD is, well, I think the, the world is probably your oyster. Um, if you've retained clinical practice throughout your studies, as I have, even not being on a clinical doctoral research fellowship, um, then a progression in clinical practice is possible for paramedics, consultant paramedic roles. That's something I'm definitely definitely considering but ultimately I think my future is as a clinical academic exactly where that might be I don't know um but I really enjoy research I enjoy teaching research and I enjoy being a clinician and I think there's so many benefits to being a clinician and being a researcher but also have the ability to bring draw on your knowledge of theory of methodology to then make that clinical practice a little bit better we've talked a lot about the NIHR and they are one funder for PhDs, but actually there's quite a few others. So another one would be the Wellcome Trust, who have a similar process whereby you submit an application covering research plans, costings, patient and public involvement, and would have an interview based on that as well. So there are other sources of funding that are national, but also local as well. So 
NHS trusts might support particular research, which is at a PhD level. And there also exists some scholarships in some universities that support it. So I'd urge any aspiring clinical academic to absolutely look at the national, look at NIHR, look at Wellcome Trust, but then actually look at the local too, because it might be there's something in your area that you could access. So there's lots of other places to look. You just do need to look for them. So there isn't a one-stop shop where one website where all of the sort of grants and money is shown for everything. You really do have to have a proper look around. And So actually approaching the clinical research network be, would be a great first step, but also groups like uh, CAPRA, so the Council for Allied Health Professional Research, would be a really good starting place. And there's a CAPRA group in every region, the same it's a clinical research network in every region. So that would definitely be a good starting place. But otherwise, professional bodies may be a bit more of a central pool for pulling together resources and, and maybe even offering their own as well. OK, Georgia Eaton, thank you so much for spending some time with me today talking to us about your amazing journey, research, your proposal, your interview, your PhD. And we look forward to reading all of your results and your papers that you produce and thank you so much for joining us well thank you very much for having me aj take care everybody be safe and we'll see you soon again on advanced practice weekly